I'm going to describe a situation that some of you are unfortunately going to find yourself in in just a matter of weeks. The situation is this. It's the kiddos have stepped away. Maybe they're in bed. Maybe they're in the other room and you're on the, on the clock. And you have a toy that is to be assembled. Now, depending on the age of the kids, you understand those toys get to be increasingly complicated, I guess. And you get the directions out and you start assembling the toy. And if you're anything like me, you get about halfway through the directions and you have to just go, what on earth do you want me to do? Like, I'll do it. I'm, I'm not opposed to following directions. I'm not that person that's like, ah, directions and, you know, pitch it. And then I'm built it the way I want it to be built. I'll do what the directions are. But what do you want me to do? What are you trying to tell me? Designer, what were you thinking? What's the message your little pictures are trying to communicate? And if, depending on the toy that you're building, it may or may not actually have any words with it. From my limited experience... The words only make it worse. (laughs) What are you trying to communicate? What is in your mind? This section in the book of Exodus is communicating one thing very clearly. God is a God of providence. You go, well, that's a word that we use all the time. My children go to Providence. That's the school they go to. We like Providence. We never define Providence. Unless you're a child of the church and you did catechism this summer. What are God's works of Providence? God's works of Providence is his wise superintendence over all of his creatures and all of their actions. That God is in charge of all things and he's superintending all things and he has designed the operation of all things to follow his plan. So actually, I guess if we were going to use the opening illustration correctly, it's an illustration where the perfect designer has designed the perfect product and he's communicating it perfectly and I'm a bit slow sometimes. What are you trying to communicate? What is your perfect providence teaching us, God? You're obviously ordering all things and this passage sings that story. But what is your ordering of events telling us? I mean, it's amazing. This is a fantastic story. It's true from start to finish. It's accurate in all its details. And it's magnificent. First, as we look at the details as God orders them, it's to express to us that God is is ordering all of his creation for the benefit of the faith of his saints. I'll say that again. He's ordering all of creation 
for the benefit of the faith of his saints. You see, Exodus is a big book. It's an important book. There's much going on, but just in the few short chapter and ten verses that we've read so far, so much has happened. God's taken his people out of a land that they knew into a land that they didn't. And he's blessed them. He's blessed them in their fertility rate in a way that I suspect is supernatural. And they have babies and the infant mortality rate for them drops and they multiply at a rate that no one else is multiplying. And that creates a problem in Egypt. A new king comes to power. It's either through the death of an old or potentially through the invasion of another. And the new pharaoh looks around and goes, we got a problem, folks. <laughs> we got a problem. Because these Hebrews are too many, and if they were to cause trouble, boy, they could cause some trouble. And chapter 1 tells of this intensifying of evil. How it starts with, oh, well, we'll just set them to work so they're too tired to procreate. And then that work is intensified, not just from heavy manual labor to slavery, intense debilitating servitude to make their lives bitter, to intensified to having the Hebrew midwives kill their children, to a green light for the Egyptians to kill your children. And to come to chapter 2, you have to have a little bit of the emotional turmoil that is designed in the passage. I mean, realistically, if you, we were living in this time, we show up for worship. It's not a Sunday morning. But we show up for worship, and you realize all of us would be terrified for that little baby that was here this morning just a few moments ago. Because we would all know he's supposed to be dead. We all would know that we're complicit to a crime. That we ourselves have not participated in Luke's death. I mean, he's eight weeks. That's eight weeks too long. Can you imagine Billy and Colleen coming to church this morning? They're going to worship in the text, imagining or thinking just a little bit. Wondering which of the Hebrews, which of their neighbors, which of their friends or their family would be the one that to try to make their life a little better with Egypt would turn traitor. And rat them out. Again, the portrait of grandparents showing up to worship, not knowing when is the day that their beautiful grandson is going to die. That's where Moses picks up his story. It's not emotionally neat and tidy like we like to make it. This passage is not one of those passages that is so clean and sanitized the way that some of us learned on the flannel graph. A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. I find out actually from the other parts of Scripture that's problematic in its own right. That right there is a family tree that hasn't actually branched. It's joined back, if you know what I'm saying. Remember the old song, I'm my own grandpa? That's Moses' story, actually. Was it his 
grandfather and his great-grandfather are the same person? Yeah, I do the math on that one. The woman conceives and bears a son, and she sees that he is a fine child. Your Bible study this week, we went through Hebrews 11. It noted the same thing in Acts when they're preaching on Moses. It notes the same thing, that when this child is born, there's something unique about him in his appearance. He is unusually lovely. Think Gerber baby. Right? That's your kind of mental picture. One of the commentators of old actually says he was born with an aspect of God's life or God's light that he would capture later on the mountain. This child has something about him. And again, put yourself in Billy and Colleen's shoes. You waited nine months. There he is right there. You waited nine months. You get him, he's handsome as all get out. Oh my goodness, he's lovely. Do you kill him? Do you let the midwives kill him? Do you let Egypt kill him? Well, obviously, if parent would do anything within reason... To try to keep that from happening, we actually find out in Hebrews 11, though, that this is more than simply just uh, maternal preservation. That they have faith that God is at work. That they have faith that God is doing something special, even through their special son. And so they put him into hiding. And again, you can make easy sense of how that would be quite possible. I mean, the Egyptians aren't checking home to home every night, not every day. Maybe Moses is a quiet one. Half of you didn't even know when Luke came in and when Luke went out. And that lasts for a time, doesn't it? But it kind of gets a bit difficult after a while. Babies start making noise. Babies start needing to move. Babies start becoming more difficult to take care of. And this is the point that it comes to in verse 3. She's hidden him for three months. It's a long time to hide a child and to, to live under the fear of an Egyptian seeing you and maybe killing your boy in front of you. Maybe you with him. And takes us to a point of desperation. Now I remember learning this, the weird things I remember from my childhood. I remember learning this in Sunday school at Christ's Covenant. Again, I have no idea why I remember that, but I do remember this one. And again, seeing the, the beautiful portraits of this adorable little baby being placed in this nice, wonderfully made wicker rattan basket and placed lovingly out into the river so he can float down into safety. This is a mom that's desperate. This is a mom that's out of options. This is a mom that has no recourse. Because if you actually pay a little bit of attention to what happens in Egypt and how it's a little bit different than the ecosystem of South Carolina, 
there are certain places where you would never place a child. Namely, in the rushes on the side of the Nile. Snakes, but that's not the big problem. Crocodiles. Plus also, if you've got a child in hiding, hiding them on the side of I-77 is probably not the best place to hide them. Where is the life of Egypt? Where is the activity of Egypt? It's in the water itself. It's the life of Egypt. You can look even today, where is all of the development? It's right along the coast of the river. This is a woman who's desperate for a solution, and so she does something that is, by all human standards, absolutely clinically insane. To take her child and to place it in the most spectacular version of harm's way. And this is where Hebrews 11 is so key. Hebrews 11, in verse 23, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 24, By faith, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You find out his upbringing. This entire section is the outworking of the faith of his parents. And you would think as you read this and go from a parent's perspective, like how bad does life have to be? That your best option, the seemingly only option, is to trust your child to God and place it where the crocodiles live. And you look at it and you go, God, what, what are you saying? What are you teaching? And we come back to it's God's sovereign plan, His providence is designed in such a way as to promote the faith of His people. Chapters 1 and 2 are filled with intense turmoil. I mean, I've never, honestly, I've never made any decision as difficult as any of the decisions in these chapters. Not, my most challenging decision has never been as difficult as any one of these. So what is God doing with it? Well, first and foremost, He's accomplishing the faith of His saints. He's building it up. Moses' parents, people, creatures of immense faith. They're mentioned in the whole of faith in Hebrews 11. And I guess I would say for most of us as Christians, if, if we lived a life where our name went in the hall of faith, the who's who of faithful Christians, man, I'm, I would think that would be a well-spent life. I don't know about you. And this is an important truth for us to understand because some of us currently are in unbelievably difficult circumstances of our own. Now, certainly it's not, hey, I'm going to go chuck my kid in the crocodile land. I hope. If you're in that situation, come talk to me before you do that, please. We don't, don't want you doing that. Some of us, though, in all seriousness, are in unbelievably difficult circumstances. The level of hurt and heartache and turmoil that we carry with us on a daily basis. 
would make some of us in the room go crazy. Maybe feel, feel like it's making you go crazy. And it's important to understand that all of these circumstances, these difficulties are ordained by God. And they are ordained for your faith. They are ordained for your good. They are ordained for His glory. They are ordained to accomplish redemption. It's said differently in the New Testament. I know He will bring to completion that which is He has begun. It's said differently in saying, I know that God does all things for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God ordains all events for the faith of his saints. Now, some of you are going, well, I mean, I get that. I know this, okay. I mean, it's not really impacts me right now. That's fine. That's fine. Great. Just file it away so when you get the flu the next time, you can pull this out. Right? Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but the next time you have the flu, there are a few things you're like, surely nothing good can come from this. Surely nothing good can come from a really good stomach flu. God ordains it to increase faith, to grow faith, to accomplish faith in his saints. It doesn't stop there, though, the story, neither does the lesson for us. As the story begins and framed out in the the darkest of blacks, it's the, the darkest of nights, it's the darkest of trials. Leading to a mom who, in an act of faith, makes... An ark. I mean, that's really the way it's told. It's designed to to remind you, to prompt you of another one. Another time where people stepped into water and had the fury and wrath of God, the danger of the world around them on all sides, yet only to be preserved by God's sovereign providence. It's told in the same way to call to mind Noah that God brought him through in this tiny little casket Perhaps he might do the same to Moses. Perhaps here we might have another one that God brings through the water. Perhaps we might see redemption again. And so mom does. She goes and puts the child among the reeds in the riverbank, which again is insanely dangerous. I mean, two of the greatest predators in the world live right there, right now. Hippos and Nile crocodiles. And mom goes back and leaves big sister standing there watching again. You think most likely, I mean, we actually know between 6 and 12 years old. That's how old big sister is, standing there watching between 6 and 12 years old, watching to see what happened. Does three-month-old baby brother that I've helped change diapers, that I've helped carry, does he become croc food? Or what will God do? Until verse 5. Now, something changes. The daughter of Pharaoh comes down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. No joke, they're walking beside the river. 
They're watching for predators. While Pharaoh's daughter hops in. It's interesting, it doesn't tell us much about this. We don't know much about who she is. The Jews assumed that it was one lady. I'm not persuaded. Uh, modern um, archaeology and, and Egyptology would help us to believe it's another. That's maybe persuasive. If that's the case, she's 10. Yeah, weird. You didn't think about that, did you? Most of us assumed she's 28 years old. That's what we all have in our mind. We don't know how old she is. It's honestly ultimately not important. But some of the other details, I think, are that she's here. That she's here in this exact spot at this exact moment at this exact place and time. And I think it's interesting because you have Pharaoh's daughter bathing in such a place that when she finds a child, her first comment is, it's a Hebrew child. Because she knows. She knows where she is. She's amongst the Hebrews. And that in itself would have been a little bit baffling, I suspect. That God would bring this woman to this place in the land that's occupied by the Hebrews at this exact moment in time so that she herself would find the child. Whether she's 10, looking for a new plaything, 28 in the midst of maternal instincts, perhaps she's in her 50s and all of her grandmotherly instincts take over and she can't stand the thought of a crying child. But God orders it. And you get to see here, it it sings from the text that God is ordering all of the events for the salvation of his people. It's not just to increase their faith, not just so they, they cope better. It's not just about helping them feel better, but that all of it is to display the salvation that God is doing. That he brings this woman to this place at this time. And again, you, you all know the story. It's the hard part about preaching passages that you all know. I can preach in the middle of numbers. You have no idea what I'm talking about. It's all fresh info. But if you were reading this for the first time, the fact that Pharaoh's daughter shows up would not be a helper. You wouldn't go, oh, good, it's Pharaoh's daughter. Right? It's not how you would read that if you read it for the first time. Because you would think, oh, I was concerned about crocs and hippos, and we found the one thing that's worse. Because chapter one's told us so. We know the condition of her father. The condition of her father is, hey, how will I promote national security? I will kill all of the baby boys. That's the condition of her father. A man whose solution to national security is genocide. Hmm, I like this guy. He's nice. I think we might need to have him over for Thanksgiving next year. No, of course not. He's the guy that he gets frustrated with the trash cans being left out in the neighborhood, so he kills all his neighbor's kids. Do you really want that guy? He's a picture of brutality. And now his daughter shows up and you would go, oh no, literally out of all of the people in Egypt, she's like number two not wanted. She hears the child crying. She sends her servant girl to go get it. She sees it and she is overcome with pity. And again, if you're reading it for the first time, your your jaw would drop open. 
Out of all of the responses that we would expect, this is not it. Because verse 6 tells us she has pity on him while knowing he is a Hebrew child. You think she doesn't know her father's command? You think she didn't know that when she went swimming in Hebrew land? No, here you have this moment of compassion and open defiance at the exact same moment in the most kind of mystifying aspect of the text. This woman goes against the most powerful man in the world because God has turned her heart with a baby. And what follows, I think, is is just again, is just as mystifying. Because it's not like, you know, like if our young daughters were, this is actually, as a kid growing up, this is how we got a cat. My family hated cats. Uh, I mean, like, really hated cats. Um, My sister started praying for a cat when she was tiny. And God answered her prayers by providing a cat in our driveway. Uh, one of the neighborhood cats that nobody knew where it came from had just had babies and somebody left a cat that was maybe a day and a half old on our driveway. I mean, I'm talking like day and a half old cat. And my mother, moved with pity and compassion, could not kill the cat. So she fed the cat and nursed the cat with, you know, bottle and milk. And the cat survived. He turned out to be a 17-pound beast that would hunt dogs. He was an amazing cat. Best cat ever. But it's an amazing thing because it was, again, this kind of moment of pity and compassion. But what's even more interesting in this one is that the Hebrew girl is like, oh, hey, by the way, do you need help? And Pharaoh's daughter is, one, comfortable engaging a Hebrew daughter in conversation. Again, that mind-boggling. Like, if you're the roaches of our country, why would I even deign to talk to you in the first place? Would you like me to go call a nurse? To, to nurse the child for you, to feed the child? <laughs> Again, unbelievable providence, the ordering of events. And Pharaoh's daughter's like, that's a good idea, go. Which again, lets you know that she's in the middle of Hebrew lands. Right? If the Hebrews lived like on the other side of Egypt, you don't send a 10-year-old to go find a nursemaid 185 miles away. Right? You send a 10-year-old to go find a nursemaid 185 feet away. Go find a nursemaid. And then goes and finds his mom, who then nurses him. And Pharaoh goes, lets him go for years for the child to be cared for. Probably in the neighborhood of three years. Which, again, is, is so baffling to me because again, you find this oh, adorable little cat and we're going to care for the cat. Do we take it to the vet and say we'll pick it up in three years? Amazing. I mean, if, you, if it's just a, a play thing that is to be cultivated, well, okay, maybe we'll uh, play with it till we get bored and move away. No, instead, here you have such intense pity and compassion that she sends the child away to be raised, to be nursed, to be cared for, so that he can be brought back into Pharaoh's home as an open defiance of her father's law. One of the resources I read said that there's probably only 2,000 in Egypt's upper caste at this point in history. So every day, Pharaoh knows there's a man walking in his house that his daughter brought in by snubbing him. 
I mean, again, willful and open defiance. Uh, Just so much, so many amazing details that God is ordering to provide salvation for his people. Because as we remember this story, Moses is special. Moses is unique. In fact, actually, the way that he tells the story, when he clues in and says that uh, she conceived and bore a son, that's a, a catchphrase that Moses used to talk about famous and important people when he tells stories in uh, the Pentateuch, and he's the last person he gives it to. It's really interesting. He, he assigns meaning and value and importance to various men throughout Genesis, and then it shows up that Moses, and he's the last one, he's the most important of the story. And God's providing for his salvation in the tiny little details that you would never guess. An aggressively defiant Pharaoh's daughter who happened to show up at the perfect time. A sense of pity and compassion that didn't wither away the second he was out of sight. I mean, again, not out of sight, out of mind. That would be really easy to do that he didn't get chomped in the first place, that his mom even gets paid to raise him. I love that part. Again, moms, how many of you would love that? Get paid to raise your own kids? God's mercy, accomplishing the salvation of the saints, accomplishing their deliverance, accomplishing the bigger picture of salvation in the Scriptures. That God will use this child, the one that was saved from death at least four times over in this passage alone. He will use him ultimately to be part of the, the process of providing salvation. And again, I would apply that to us. To be reminded that the various details of your life are designed for your salvation. And by salvation, I don't mean your conversion. I mean that trip that you take from birth into the life to come. That all that God has ordained for your life, the various things that he has planned for you, are designed for your trip to that heavenly country is preparing you for glory. The intelligence that he gave you, or lack thereof. The humor that he gave you, or lack thereof. The health that he gave you, or lack thereof. The ease of life, or lack thereof the joy and friendship and easy companionship or the lack thereof, the delight in the things of, the good things of this world that he's designed for us or or lack thereof. All of these things he's planned as part of the process of your preparation for heaven. And there's a great problem with this that so much of the American church is built around one primary ethic, and it is this if it hurts, it's bad. I mean, that's what our culture tells, right? It doesn't matter what you do, right or wrong, doesn't matter as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Well, suddenly, sadly, that's crept into the American church as well, and we say, well, as if, if it hurts, it's obviously bad, and it's like, no, God's using it 
in your life. He's using it for your good. He's using it for your salvation. You may say, well, I don't like God's plan. Fair enough. You might not. And that's actually the last point that we need to kind of clue in on this passage, is that this passage is certainly displaying that it's designed for the faith of the saints, it's designed for the salvation, the bigger salvation of the saints, but it's also in an unbelievably cheeky way showcasing God's wisdom. I like this one. This has a bit of God's, I I believe, very cheeky sense of humor a lot of times. And this one shows it in so many ways. Already here in the way that it's being told, it's just dropped casually at the beginning. Oh yeah, by the way, he's born of a Levite father and a Levite mother. And you're like, well, okay, who cares? I mean, I love that. That's the one that as a Westerner, realistically, if I had asked you about these verses without reading them, all of us would have been able to say, oh yeah, it was Pharaoh's daughter that pulled him out. He was in a little basket. It was covered with pitch. I got all those things almost none of us would have been able to say, oh yeah, he's born of two Levitical parents. Because that doesn't really matter to us. But it really matters to Hebrews. Paul's going to say that he was Hebrew of Hebrews. Moses is going to be able to say that he is a Levite of Levites, which is going to become really important chapters later when he's the one interacting with God on their behalf. That when it's time for a priesthood, he actually fits the description. God's infinitely wise and ordering details, even in a way that we wouldn't expect, and from a family or relationship that we realistically, none of us would approve of. man marrying his aunt. But God ordered it. And in infinite wisdom, and it's a delight And again, what a delightful irony. If you're a Jew reading this and to think this is, if you're a Jew reading, this is the story of how we were brought out of Pharaoh's grasp and God did it through a man who was saved by Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, what a delicious irony that the one who God uses to save his people was spared first by Pharaoh's own household, then was raised in Pharaoh's household so that he has all of the knowledge and all of the skill and then goes back and defeats Pharaoh's household. If modern contemporary conservative archaeology is correct, the Pharaoh of the ten plagues is his step-uncle. He's raised in his home. We don't know that for sure. I'm saying if archaeology is correct. But he definitely knows him. What an amazing piece of irony that God is saying, look, I'm going to defeat all of those false gods and all of those false values and all of those false things that you take power in, that you take comfort in, that you take security in. You, Egypt, you take, you know, you take comfort and value and might in your king. Yeah, he's going to be defeated even using his own daughter. Oh, yeah, the thing that you worship after that? The Nile, yeah, that's going to be used too. All of the things that are important to you are going to be defeated. And I love, again, the the delicious irony at the end. It's, It's my favorite. Verse 10. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. I wonder what they called him before that. I'd love to know. And he became her son. And she named him Moses. 
Because in Hebrew, I drew him out of the water, which is a cool little name meaning. But the word also means something in Egyptian, which is really fun. We see it actually all of the time with like Tutmosis, Ramses, the MS lettering pair in Egyptian is son of. And so he's named son of dot, 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 dot. He's not son of the Egyptian gods. They don't know who he's son of at all. And you're going to have this unbelievable contrast and irony that in Pharaoh's house, you're going to have a guy walking around that in Egyptian is named after an unknown father who's going to be the child of, figuratively speaking, the God who will defeat them. That all of their false gods will be petty gods, will be put down and exterminated. You realize that's a large part of what the ten plagues are. It's a competition of gods and this one will win. With a child that was drawn out of the water by a person you would never expect. And again, I would suggest for those of you that are in particularly difficult trials, difficult times, seasons of great suffering, do not grow weary of God's wisdom. Most oftentimes, our weariness is only a byproduct of our lack of perspective that we see too small. And again, I think about from the disciples' perspective where you know, Jesus is murdered on the cross and they, they go back and they meet in the room and you've got to think, well, we lost. Right? I mean, I guess that we had a good run. Devil wins. Evil wins. Sorry. I hope God has a plan C. And to think that no one actually in that moment, they don't see it because their perspective is so small. But the victory is the thing that has been accomplished. It's the death. That, that's the thing that's changed more than anything in human history. And yet you have to think they were grieving over it right after it happened. The greatest victory inside creation. And you have the disciples mourning over it because their perspective is too small. I might suggest that sometimes we do the same. Where we grow a bit weary of God's wisdom. A bit weary of God's providence. A bit weary of God's design. Maybe because our perspective is a little bit too small. And sometimes that perspective might not be corrected until the life to come. But to know God is good all of the time. And all of the time God is good and if you are his child, he is always good to you. Let's pray. Lord, we bless your name. Thank you for such delightful passages. We pray that you would give us humility and trust and love, that we would love you in your goodness, trust you in your wisdom, and be humble to submit to your perfect providence. Oh God, safeguard us and keep us, we pray. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.